All right, if you'll take your Bibles, please open them to the book of Hebrews in the sixth chapter. Um, We're going to return to this same passage, beginning at verse 9, reading through verse 12. Again, focusing our attention on verses 11 and 12. I think we're going to be here for a few weeks. There is a lot to see. So if you'll join me in standing out of reverence for the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 6, beginning at verse 9. Beloved, we are confident of better things concerning you. Yes, things that accompany salvation, though we speak in this manner. For God is not unjust to forget your work and labor of love, which you have shown towards his name, in that you have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, But imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would give to us grace in this day. We pray, Father, that you would make us aware of the necessity for spiritual diligence. Help us, God, to understand how important it is, how pressing it is. Help us to be found faithful. God, I know that for all of us, diligence is always a struggle. But God, I also know that you are the God who finishes everything he begins. So give us the grace to walk with you in the midst of these days and help us to finish as well as we begin. Help us to begin better than we do and help Christ in in us and among us to be honored by us. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus. Amen. So... I've been continually struck as I have been praying through and pondering through and and working on this this passage, how tightly woven and tied together it is. It forms a knot of logic and interconnected statements that can be a bit difficult to separate and to discern fully. Now, I know that if you have a physical knot and it's in a bit of cordage that's tight and difficult, the best way to loosen that knot is to take it and roll it around in your hands. That causes the, the bindings and the bites and the things that are in there to loosen up a little bit so that you can begin to pull it apart. And it's also true that this is the best way to fully understand a compact and tightly constructed argument. Take it, roll it around in your mind, and see how each idea is locked and wrapped around each other. Today, we're going to begin the process of unpacking this powerful bit of Scripture. There's a lot for us to consider, much gold worth digging up and using for life. We'll dive deeper in the weeks to come, but for now we need to wrestle out some fundamental truths that that might have escaped our notice about our diligence. They're only the trailheads of many excellent paths, but before we can go too far down any of them, we must understand how they all fit together and see the source of the whole. So what I want to do is begin by thinking about the flow of the thought. You, you hear me say that a lot when we start something new. Now, last time I spoke, not last week, but two weeks ago, we talked about diligence as a concept. We addressed the idea of diligence being important. We addressed the idea that God is um, seriously concerned with our diligence, commands us to, to live diligent lives, that he blesses the diligent, that he is faithful, and that he will always reward those who diligently seek him, and that we needed to be on our guard against evil because evil is always diligently seeking to derail our lives. While we go about things sort of haphazardly, 
evil marches to very specific commands and very specific orders, and it's always on the prowl to harm us. So to do our best and to be faithful as much as we can, it behooves us to attach the same sort of diligence to our spiritual lives that many of us do to our professional lives or our personal lives or our recreational lives. You pick where you are most diligent and understand that that level of diligence is just a beginning point for how diligent you must be in spiritual things. God calls us to diligence, and so this is an important thing. And I want to think with you about how the writer of Hebrews is addressing our diligence in this passage. So again, I want to just read verses 11 and 12, and then we're going to kind of look at the flow of thought here. We desire that each one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope until the end, that you do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. So, he begins by saying, this is our fervent desire for you. So immediately, we begin to understand that the writer of Hebrews thinks this is an important issue. Okay, this is not a minor issue. He's not saying, oh, by the way, I like the color blue for the church carpet. He's not addressing something inconsequential like whether or not you go with pews or chairs or whether or not you stand or sit to sing or whether or not you have the offering plate passed or whether you collect at the back of the building. These things are all unimportant. These things are all part of how we do church, but they don't really matter. You could choose one or choose the other, and it makes no real difference. I promise you pews are not more holy than chairs. They just are less Functional. (laughs) But the writer of Hebrews is telling us that his desire for spiritual discipline is an earnest desire. It's a passionate desire. It's something that he's looking at saying, this really matters, guys. This is important. And he says, it's my earnest desire that you complete the diligence that you started. And he commends them for their diligence in love. In other words, you began well. You've done a good job. You have been capable in your your exercise of diligence in loving each other. Now, a lot of times we'll hear in the church today that the actions that we commit and the actions that we do and how we love one another are more important than the things that we believe. You'll hear a lot of people try to make the, the argument that it's more important that you do than that you rightly think believe. I, I understand the argument because James tells us that faith without works is dead. But the gospel cannot be communicated without words. You cannot communicate the truth of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus just by loving somebody. And if you are actively loving people and say, well, I'll have the truth to tell them when they ask me, okay, that's a whole different conversation. We can have that conversation. For the most part, they won't often ask, but that's a different issue. But I want to press this point to you before we move on. Suppose they do ask. At that point, does it matter that you believe accurately? So that you can share accurately how a person comes to the knowledge of Christ, what it is that Christ has done, what their need is for a Savior? Does it matter that you know the truth? Then let us set aside the argument and say how you love is important, but that what you believe 
at the end of the day, when it comes down to the salvation of people that you love, and I'm going to make the point later on when it comes down to your own salvation and your comfort in it, what you believe is more important. And that's what the writer of Hebrews is saying. He says, look, you began well. You loved each other very well. And I will, I'll just make this point, and then I'll go on. If that was the ultimate, if that was the pinnacle of it all, then he would have nothing else to say. Amen? Does it not stand to reason that if all he was concerned about was that they know how to love each other actively and well, then having said, hey, you loved each other really well, let's move on to something different. Because they've obviously done that part. He commends them for it. He he tells them, you guys love each other really well and you have ministered to the saints and God is not going to forget your work. He's not going to forget your love. But he, he doesn't stop there. He says... I'm I'm applauding your effort thus far. You have loved each other well, but I earnestly desire that you go on with the same diligence that you showed in loving each other to rightly understand the truth. Now you say, I didn't see those words in there. That's because you weren't reading. It says that you must be diligent. How? Let's look at this again. Verse 11. The same diligence to the full assurance of hope. The full assurance of hope. How are you fully assured of something? By rightly understanding it. Amen? If you rightly understand the truth, then you will be fully assured of its veracity. If you rightly understand the truth, you will be fully assured that what you believe is true and right, and not just because I told you, but because the Spirit of God told you and told you through the power of His Word being faithfully applied to your life. So the writer of Hebrews says, I desire that you go on beyond loving each other and that you begin to have the same diligence applied to a right understanding of Scripture, to the full assurance of hope. That you have to be diligent in your knowledge and that you have to be diligent in your hope. Now, this may come as a surprise to you, but what this communicates is that your hope is really the final target. This life is the least important aspect of your life. This life will end. One day, you will cease to be in this place. You, however, the essential components of who and what you are, will go on living past this life. This is the smallest part of your life. This is that little bit, though it may be 90 or 100 or 120 years, if by the strength of a man, you go on to the fullest of how long a man's going to live. This is still the smallest, least significant portion of your life. But it is the portion that has its echoes into eternity. So if you spend your life here and now only satisfying the here and now, you will find yourself at best a pauper in heaven. You will find yourself at best with no tools for worship, no praise to give, no participation in the worship of heaven in the fullest possible sense. And that's the best case scenario. A worst case scenario is that you would find yourself a pauper in hell. A worst case scenario is that you would find yourself not accepted into the presence of the king because you will hear words like this, depart from me, I never knew you. You see, 
the diligence that we apply to the rest of our lives should be the smallest portion of our diligence. Our greatest diligence should be applied to the spiritual dynamic of who we are in Christ. Our greatest diligence should be applied to spiritual things because this is the only part that actually matters. If we're going to be living towards a steadfast hope of an eternity that never ends, then does it not stand to reason that that largest portion of our lives ought to have the largest portion of our attention? Does it not stand to reason that that greatest portion of who we are and where we will spend all of the span that we are should receive the lion's share of our time, of our energy, of our effort, of our everything? Amen? The writer of Hebrews says, I want you to be diligent in your hope. And I want you to continue steadfastly. And he uses this phrase, we'll get to it in a few weeks. He says, not becoming sluggish. In other words, I don't want you to end like the plethora of people in the Bible that start well and finish poorly. There is a host of people in the Bible. You could look in almost any page and find reference or, or, or tale about somebody who began well and ended poorly. And the writer of Hebrews says, I want you to be diligent so that you run off the end of your life. Think about it like a great cliff. And you can come up to the edge and go, oh, oh, oh. Sooner or later, you're going over. Wouldn't it be better just to run? And run full speed, full strength, full steam, and come to the end of your life running faster and harder than you did when you began? That's how I would like to die. That's how I would like to be seen. I would like to be known as a man who finished his life with more energy and passion than he began it. Now, let me tell you the truth. I'm failing at that miserably, but it's still a goal. It's still something that I want to be. I do not want to wear down and live out my days doing nothing. I want to run to the end and run through the finish line. That, that's, that's the desire of the writer of Hebrews for the church. He says, my desire is that you not become sluggish in this. He says, I want you to imitate those who have gone before and have shown you clearly what the path of righteousness is. So you have an option to select people to model your life after. You can model your life after those who have lived and said, oh, I've done my bit for God and country, now I'm not doing anything else again. And there's no shortage of those people to model your life after. Or you can model your life after those who say, I will pursue Christ with everything I have in me until I have nothing left to give. And that's really about how you look at the things that God has given you and the time that God has given you and the energy that God has given you. Now, I understand that as we age, we physically may not be able to do everything that we used to be able to do. But that does not at all impact what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the purpose and the passion and the energy of your lives and on what are you focused? Where do you spend yourself? If you would sit down for just a very brief amount of time and look at the hours that you are awake in a day and ask yourself the question, of those hours, how many of them were given to God and His work and how many of them were given to my own pleasures you would probably be appalled at the ratio. 
It's a healthy exercise, but be prepared for disappointment. Because none of us are doing the things that we think we're doing when we start to examine it honestly. The writer of Hebrews says, I want you to be diligent to get to the end. I want you to go all the way. And I want you to go all the way, imitating consciously, purposely, with, with, with purpose in your mind and heart, imitating those who have gone to the end of their lives, following hard after Christ. The, the great standing, shining example in Scripture is the Apostle Paul, who at the end of his life has the courage to say, I have reached the finish, I have run my race, I am now going to see my God. I, I'm done. I have, I'm expecting the crown that's been laid up for me. And what was his expectation? Why? Because he had run his race well. He's fought the fight. He finished the race. He's done everything that God put in front of him to do. He said, even now I'm being poured out like a drink offering. It's time for me to go. They're, they're sharpening the sword that they're going to use to take off my head, but that's okay. I am expecting the presence of Christ. It's a remarkable perspective on the end of a life. And the writer of Hebrews is is giving us instruction, but also giving us a charge and an opportunity to come to the end of our lives with that perspective. Look, this shouldn't come as a surprise to you. You're going to die. Amen? You will die. You will come to the end of your life one day. And how you get there is far less important than how you are when you get there. Does that make sense? How you actually come to the end of your life is absolutely inconsequential. For whatever methodology, however you die, whether you are taken by disease or taken by violence or whether you are in a prison languishing for your faith, whatever it might be, when you come to the actual end of your life, your heart will simply not take the next beat. That's really what it comes down to. Correct me if I'm wrong, Peggy. (laughs) At some point, the heart will simply stop. By some mechanism or another, it will simply not take the next beat. And when that happens, you will open your eyes in the presence of your God. What you are goes with you. Do you understand that? What you have made your life to be is what you take with you. Not what you have. Not not anything that's here, but what you are. And what you are is profoundly shaped by the diligence with which you pursue the righteousness that has been set out before you by men and women who have faithfully trod the path of righteousness ahead of you. You are not trailblazers in the purest sense of the word. There are others who have gone the way before you. But you are trailblazers in the sense of there are those who are coming after you. Your own children, your own grandchildren, your own cousins, nieces, nephews, friends you meet along the way. People that God places in your life will look at your life and say, that's the person that I know, and they said they love Jesus, so they must know how to follow him to the end. Are you blazing a trail that you want somebody to follow? 
Are you blazing a trail that you want your children to walk in? Some of us get it right on some points and miserably on others. In fact, most of us do. It's a good time for us to assess the reality of what we're doing and the reality of how diligently we're pursuing Christ. Because ultimately, the path of righteousness is a marathon. It's something that that is an an all-life proposition. And patience will be rewarded if you continually, patiently tread the path of righteousness. Patience is also required. While it is rewarded, it is also required. You cannot get to the end well without a healthy dose of spiritual patience. Because every single day that you tread this earth, you're going to find something that is desiring to keep you from pursuing Christ. And you're going to have to deal with it, and it's going to feel like you had to deal with it yesterday. And it's going to feel like you're going to have to deal with it again tomorrow. And you're going to have to deal with it in the next minute when you dealt with it right now. Those things happen. It is the nature of this life. And it's the nature of this life because this life is one thing and one thing only. It is the place where you are prepared for the presence of your God. So God will do whatever is necessary in this life to prepare you for what actually matters. We have to change our perspective. We have to understand that these things come to us out of Scripture because ultimately the path that we tread of righteousness actually ultimately arrives at our inheritance of God's promised blessing to us. When we walk the path of this life faithfully, diligently, giving ourselves to obedience to God, giving ourselves to faithfully following His commands, what awaits us at the end is the promised inheritance. Now, the truth is, is that nobody can do this apart from the grace and mercy of God. Nobody can do this apart from God being faithfully who He said He is. So, I want you to keep that in mind, because a lot of times when we start thinking about our diligence and our practice, it's really easy to draw into it a misconception that I'm talking about salvation by works. It's easy to draw into it a misconception and therefore turn off your brain to understand that you do have responsibility to obey what God says. You are saved by grace through faith, which is not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. God gives you the faith. He gives you the grace to call out to Him. He calls you to life. He does all of this. But at the same time, He calls you to obedience. And He holds you accountable for the obedience that you give or do not give. Now, The writer of Hebrews starts off this entire statement saying that he is applauding their diligence in love. So I thought it would be worth our time to maybe look at some of the things that Scripture gives us about how they've been diligent in love. So turn to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter 10. And we're just going to read a few verses here. Hebrews 10, starting at verse 32, it says this, Recall the former days in which, after you were illuminated, or enlightened, you endured a great struggle with sufferings, partly while you were made a spectacle both by reproaches and tribulations, and partly while you became companions of those who were so treated. For you had compassion on me in my chains." 
and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and an enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. Therefore, do not cast away your confidence, which has great reward, for you have need of endurance, so that after you have done the will of God, you may receive the promise. For yet for a little while, and he who is coming will come and will not tarry, but now the just shall live by faith. If anyone draws back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who draw back to perdition, but of those who believe to the saving of the soul. So what's he say? He starts off saying that they had love for the saints, and he talked about their love for one another. He talked about how they were patient in the face of trials, and how they showed solidarity with those who were in difficulty and that these things come from a large part out of a heart that loves God. Okay? That the, the idea is that because you love God, you loved one another actively and obediently. Because God gives to us the love that we bear for one another. God is the one who gives to us the love that we show. Remember, God is the source of all of this. But you have a choice to look at your life and to look at the things that God gives you and say to yourself, I could go love this person, I could go participate in their sufferings, or I could quietly hide back here and not engage in their sufferings and make my life a whole lot easier. I could do that. I have the option to come alongside somebody who's being persecuted for the sake of righteousness and identify myself publicly with them, which means I could be suffering for the sake of righteousness or their righteousness or their position on righteousness. Or I could just quietly hide in the background and I'll pray for them, of course. But I'm not going to do anything publicly so that I'm associated with them because I don't really want to suffer what I'm seeing them (coughs) suffer. It's your option. Which one do you think God is going to smile at? (laughs) So, the writer of Hebrews commends their active love, partly for himself, because he was the recipient of their active love. You, You weren't ashamed of me in my chains. Seems to be a common thread throughout much of Scripture. But also, he commends them for the fact that this was not just, oh, great, this is, this is the writer of a great book. This is whoever this is. We don't know who the author of Hebrews is. Some believe it's Paul. I don't. But it doesn't really matter. This great man of God, and, and we, we have the opportunity to do something good for him, and so let's go do something good for him. But that's not what it was. What it was was the fact that they did this actively for one another and for all of the believers. And by doing so, they honored the God who they said they adored. They honored God in their practice of obedience in this fashion. And he is the one who gave them that love for each other. But it goes deeper than that. Because in their obedience to God in loving each other, they are also honoring him. You say, well, I'm not quite sure how that follows. Pay attention. What gives us the power to lose this life for the sake of the kingdom? His mercy, but it it comes out of a fervent belief that God will keep his promises. 
If I don't believe that God is faithful, if I don't believe that God will keep his promises, then I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that I protect what's mine. If I don't believe that God can be trusted to do something better than I can imagine, then I'm going to make certain that I do everything that I can to defend my own. Now, sometimes that'll mean silence and sometimes that'll mean violence. But I'm going to do everything in my power to make sure that I'm, I've got this under my control. Why? Because I don't believe God. I don't trust Him. Now, now this is not a diatribe against practicing self-defense. This is not a diatribe against guns or anything else because you have a responsibility to protect the innocent. That includes your family. That includes all, all of that. But fundamentally, when I'm faced with a choice to lay down my own life and my own privileges or not, it's going to come down to whether or not I believe that God can be trusted to do what he said he's going to do. That's really at the root of all of it. Do I believe my God? Do I trust him at the core of all of it? Do I believe that he can be relied upon to fulfill his word? So if he tells me to not oppose and to, and to just step up and stand in solidarity with somebody, do, can I trust him to make that good? If I don't believe that, there is not a snowball's chance in a fiery place that I'm going to be able to do it. That makes sense? So when we begin to love one another actively, when we begin to love one another with solidarity and, and with, a, with a determination to bear one another's burdens in this fashion, when we're diligent in this love, like the, like the people in, in the churches in Palestine had been, as he's commending here, when we're diligent in this way, it is an honoring thing to God. For we are testifying through our lives and through our actions that we believe what he says. Do you see the connection? It honors our God. It pleases him. For we are willing then to suffer loss for the sake of the name of Christ, and it also has the added benefit of loosening our grip on the stuff of this world. And the stuff of this world is the thing that bites us the most. The things that are merely physical, the things that are merely the things of this life, the things that are not going to matter in a, in a hundred minutes or a hundred years, those are the things that cling to us. Those are the things that bite us the most. Those are the things that suck away our energy, they suck away our time, they suck away our diligence, they suck away our faithfulness. And so as God teaches us through little ways and big ways that he can be trusted fully to keep all of his promises, it has the very realistic and very natural effect of loosening our grip on these things that trip us up. It has the very real effect of causing us to no longer trust in these things, but instead to trust in the promise of God. And trusting in the promise of God honors him above everything else. Hebrews 11.6 tells us what? Without faith it is impossible to please God, for he who seeks after God must do what? Must believe that God is, and that he is what? A rewarder of those who seek him. So we believe first of all in his existence, and secondly we believe that he keeps his promises. That's really the translation here. That's what's underneath it. 
We believe that God is faithful. We believe that He keeps His word. We believe that no matter what it looks like, He is absolutely to be trusted. It also means that the way that we view the world is shaped according to what God has said. It means that when I look at things and make a determination that's good or that's bad, the filter with which I make that determination is not my own preference. It is the Word of God. It is the truth of God. It is the very absolute reality that God has spoken, and since He has spoken, He is to be believed. Do I believe Him? Do I take Him at His word? Do I trust what He has said? I must trust what He has said if I am going to be honoring Him by believing His promises. And the target of this is a living and active hope that secures our hearts unto the day of redemption. What is the flow of the writer again? The same diligence of your love to the full assurance, that's what you think, the full assurance of hope which shows the target, and that you imitate through faith, which is what you think and believe, and patience, which is applied diligence over time. All of these things are wrapped up in this tiny little package, this idea that your diligence is not merely actively doing something good, but understanding why it matters and understanding the truth that underwrites it. Look, the reality is this. We can love people pretty well for a while. All on our own. You can fake it for a while. And I say that understanding that I may offend you. But, but we, we're capable of, of putting on a pretty good show for a little while. Maybe decades. But sooner or later, that's going to come to the end. Sooner or later, you're going to be squeezed at a point that hurts enough that the truth is going to come out. Sooner or later, you're going to drop your guard and you're going to say something that you've been saying inside your head for a long time. And you never meant to say it, but having said it, you can't unsay it. Sooner or later, you're going to be caught in the trap of your own deception if your love is based only in you. You say, well, I can love people. Sure you can, as long as they're useful. As long as you're getting something in the exchange that seems fair and equitable to you. That's the basis of all human love. That's why men leave their wives. That's why adultery happens. That's why people are murdered. Because all of our interactions are based upon what seems best to me at the time and what I'm going to get from you. I know that sounds really mercenary and I know that sounds really harsh, but if you'll take just a minute and think about it, you'll recognize the truth of it. Because what drives us apart from any mercy? What drives us apart from any grace? What drives us apart from the love of God? Is it not self and self-centeredness? What is our greatest motivation? Me. I am my greatest motivation. I am my greatest desire. I am my largest proponent and my truest advocate. All of us are. And until God comes in and transforms that by His grace into something deeper and truer and stronger and better than that, that's all you got. 
And it can look like love for a while. It can look like love for a long time. But at the end of the day, if it's driven by self and selfishness, it's not love. It's just a business agreement. You do this for me, I'll do this for you. And sadly, that defines many human relationships and they never grow beyond that. But what we're called to be in our relationships is diligent and not just for love, but diligent in faith. We're called to be diligent in how we approach the question of who we are. Now, I want you to notice again in verse 12. Go back to Hebrews 6. It says in verse 12, You do not become sluggish, but imitate those who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Those who will inherit the promises must have faith. They must be diligent in their faith. They must possess faith that has been given by God, and they must possess it not only for a short little spark that goes, Oh, I believe in Jesus, now leave me alone, don't ever come to my house again. That's not faith. Doesn't matter whether you said a prayer. Doesn't matter whether you got baptized. Doesn't matter whether you did anything else. Faith is something that lasts a lifetime. It never dies. It never goes away. So the man who says, I used to be a Christian, I'm not anymore, is lying on two counts. He never was. So, never could be. And he never believed what he said he believed in the first place. His heart was never new. He's lying. He's lying to himself. He's lying to you. Now, in the end, if we look at this and say, okay, if I have to have faith, then what do we do about the people who have it and don't have it and have it and don't have it and come and go and vanish and and reappear? How do you assess that? Well, look at me at Luke chapter um, 8. I want to give a little perspective on this. And again, I want to try and keep it as close to the truth as I possibly can. So let's ask Jesus. Luke chapter 8, starting at verse 4. Now a great multitude had gathered, and they came to him from every city. And he spoke by parable, saying, A sower went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trampled down, and the birds of the air devoured it. Some fell on a rock, and as soon as it sprang up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. Some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. But others fell on good ground, sprang up, and yielded a crop a hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then his disciples asked him, What does this parable mean? He said to them, To you it has been given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God, but to the rest it is given in parables, the seeing they may not see, and hearing they may not understand. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. Those by the wayside are the ones who hear, and the devil comes and takes away the word out of their hearts, lest they should believe and be saved. The ones on the rock are those who, when they hear, receive the word with joy, And these have no root, who believe for a while, and in time of temptation fall away. Now the ones that fell among thorns are those who, when they have have heard, go out and are choked with cares, riches, and the pleasures of life, and bring no fruit to maturity. 
But the ones that fell on the good ground are those who, having heard the word with a noble and good heart, keep it and bear fruit with patience. Now, I personally believe that the truest interpretation of this is that three-quarters of the people that are described in this parable are lost. But I'll allow that perhaps I'm mistaken on half, and maybe three-quarters are saved. Okay. You can make the argument. I've heard it. I don't buy it, but I've heard it. It makes enough sense. But either way, I want you to notice something. Half the people that are described in this parable received the word with joy, confessed that they believed, and bear no fruit. No fruit at all. Now Mark and Matthew, in their rendering of this, interp- in rendering of this parable, <laughs> give it a little harsher. The same percentages apply, but they seem to imply with a little more strength that these are not saved people. These are not people who belong to God. Ideally, what we need to recognize is that whether we're talking about saved people or not saved people does not change the fundamental dynamic that they did not persevere. They did not apply with diligence the pursuit of the things of God. They did not stay. Their lives bear testimony of the fact that they did not stay. But in Luke, Jesus goes on to say that those who persevere to the end with what? With patience. Bear fruit. 30, 60, 100 fold. Those who persevere to the end with patience. In other words, I get it that it's hard. I understand that sometimes things do not go the way you want them to go. I understand that sometimes the pressure in your life just mounts and mounts and mounts, and you would like nothing more than to pull the escape hatch and check out. I understand that sometimes you're looking for a cave to hide in or someplace to hide the bodies. I get it. But I also understand that what God calls you to do is to press through that moment and keep on pressing after Him. And that He will give you the patience and He will give you the endurance and He will give you the grace and He will give you the strength to do that. And that He always gives that to those who are His own. Always. Scripture says that God's soul finds no delight in those who shrink back. We read it just a minute ago. In those who go, ah, no, never mind. Not following you. Not chasing that dream. Not interested in that pain. What God calls us to do is to press after him regardless of what it looks like as a consequence that we can imagine. Part of our problem is our vision is too small. Part of our problem is we look only in the things of this life. We look only at the temporal and temporary costs. We look only at the temporal and temporary gains. And we make our decisions based upon things that do not enter in at all. Instead, we ought to understand that what God calls us to do is to enter into the conversation saying, Lord, how will this thing that hurts a whole lot change me for your glory in your kingdom? 
How can this tragedy be turned to my spiritual advantage? How can this hardship be turned to my growth? I want you to understand that God is going to be doing what He's doing in the lives of His children, whether they're asking those questions or not. But I have learned through very painful and bitter experience that it's better for me if I'm actively involved with Him and engaged with Him in the process. The pain is still real, but the duration is generally shorter. If I'm willing to approach my difficulties and say, God, what is it that you're teaching me? What is it that you're showing me? What is it that I need to jettison in my life? Or what is it that I need to build into my life by faithfulness through your word? How is it that you want this thing to be turned to my spiritual benefit? When I'm asking those kinds of questions, God generally answers fairly quickly. Those who continue with patience bear fruit. God calls us to be a people who continue with patience. Because in the end, the diligence of faith and patience is that which is most easily lost, and often it is the first thing to vanish. Remember I said we can love people for a little while on our own strength? You can do that for a long time after you're not loving them in your heart. You can do that for a long time after you've given up faith, after you've given up hope, after you've given up that anything you do is going to make any difference in their life at all. Or in your life at all. You can keep going through the motions for a long time in that desert. But Scripture calls us to be faithful, to be diligently pursuing Christ, and to recognize that just going through the motions, well, sometimes it'll get you there. I am, honestly, I know it sounds contradictory, I am a believer in fake it till you make it. If God gives you a burden and you recognize, man, I should be doing this. I don't want to, I don't feel like it, but I should be doing this. Get out and do it. Just go and and do it. Engage in the process. God will come alongside you and will strengthen you as you go. It's not hypocrisy if if your intention is, Lord, I really want to honor you. I really want to do this. I just don't have it in me. That kind of fake it till you make it actually helps. That actually works. That actually is something that invites God to come along. We need to recognize the truth that there is such a thing as a reality of of inertia. That you can be loving somebody for a while, long after your love has ceased, and just going through the motions because it's what you've been doing. God calls you to recognize that is sin, to repent, and to drive back into the heart of God with everything you have in you and ask Him to restore that love. And it doesn't matter what that relationship is. It doesn't matter whether you're talking about a marriage or a friendship or or a calling in your life. If, If God has equipped you and given you something in your life that He has called you to do, then, then God is calling you to do it. And you, you must recognize the truth that God has given you what he's given you for a reason. Now, it doesn't mean that you have to do it in the same way that you've always done it or in the same place that you've always done it. But God's given you giftedness for a purpose. Use what he's given you for the purpose that he has given it to you. Find how to engage with the kingdom in the things that God has given you. 
This is the discipline that is required in us to pursue him. We must put aside that which we have known and that which we have sought. Now, I want to share something else with you this morning very quickly here. Because the faith that God gives to us, that that he is calling us to walk with diligence and, and to pursue, is a faith that is always victorious. The faith that runs on inertia is going to lag into despair. It'll fall into despondency. It'll fall into ruin. Because in the end, it lacks the comfort that is promised in Christ. And I can't tell you how many people I've heard this from. Pastor, I just don't feel any comfort from Christ anymore. I don't feel like anything I'm doing is useful. I don't feel like anything I'm trying is benefiting the kingdom. I am always... Trying, but gaining nothing. God, I, I just don't even know what to do. Please, help me. Right? I, I get that those things are real. I get that those feelings arise. But, but in the end, if we're not walking in victory, then, then something is wrong in us and not in him. That's, that's the first thing you have to recognize. It is not that God has failed. It's the, there is something in your life that is out of line with what he is calling and commanding you to be. There's something in you that is the issue. And that's where you must begin to, to turn your heart back. Because in the end, if you're not walking in the victory, then you are missing out on the fullness of comfort that Christ has promised. Amen? If you look at your life and you feel like nothing that I do makes any difference for the kingdom, is there much comfort in, in somebody saying, hey, you're, making, you know, you're doing good things for God? Yeah, okay, whatever. I, 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 don't, I don't even know how to respond to that. I, I'm obviously not doing anything good for God. It makes no difference what I do. I'm done. That's, that's what I hear. That's how people press back when, when I try to encourage them if they're walking in such a way that they have no comfort from Christ because they have not diligently sought Him. Listen to how the book of Revelations describes this. Look at Revelation 15. I want to show you that picture in reverse. Revelation 15 Verse 2, it says this, I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire, and those who have the victory over the beast, over his image and over his mark, and over the number of his name, standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and marvelous are your works, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the saints. Who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. For all the nations shall come and worship before you. For your judgments have been manifested. Now that's powerful praise. But who does that powerful praise belong to? It says, those who have the victory. Now, the phrase, those who have the victory, is one word in the Greek. And the word is nikontas. And there is an English word which captures the idea, and that word is overcomers. It's a powerful concept. And it's a stirring truth. We are called to walk in the victory that the Lord Jesus Christ promises us as overcomers. 
Those who have overcome Satan, those who have overcome the mark of the beast, those who have overcome all of the powers and the pressures of the world to, to do the things. Look again at this list. They have been overcomers over the beast, over his image, over his mark, over the number of his name. In other words, over the culture that worships the beast. Now, however you interpret the book of Revelation, you need to recognize the truth that the spirit of the age is the spirit of the beast. Always. Whether you think this is the end times and Jesus is going to peel back the sky and return tomorrow, whether you think it's going to happen in a thousand years, whether you're pre-trib, mid-trib, whether you are premillennial or post-millennial or amillennial, it doesn't matter how you interpret the book of Revelation. You need to recognize the truth that the spirit of the age is given to the beast. Always. And if you're giving your heart to the things that the culture worships and adores, you are giving yourself to the spirit of the beast. Now, it doesn't take a rocket scientist to recognize the truth that if you're giving your heart to the spirit of the beast, you're not overcoming him. Amen? You're capitulating. You're in his camp. Instead of giving your heart to the spirit of the beast, you ought to be overcoming him by all the things that are God's instead of all the things that are his. The victory that has been given to us in Christ. Look at 1 John chapter 5. First John chapter 5 and verse 4 says this. For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. There's that word again. Nikonos, but this time it's a slightly different form. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Our faith. And who is he that overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? The victory that is our property and purview as overcomers is our faith. And that faith is not of you. Amen? It is the gift of God. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 tell us that by faith you are saved through grace. By grace you are saved through faith, sorry. And this is not of yourselves, but it is the gift of God. This is what saves you. It is the faith that God gave you when He called you. And the same faith that He gave you when He called you, He gives you to sustain you. It's His. And this faith is always victorious in the end. It will always be the overcomer. Because it's not your victory that is the overcomer. It is Christ Jesus who is the overcomer. It is Him who is the power for our lives to have any consequence whatsoever. It is the victory of the Lord Jesus Christ. Look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. This is not just a funeral passage. 1 Corinthians 15, starting at verse 51, it says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised incorruptible and we shall be changed. 
For this corruptible must put on incorruption, and this mortal must put on immortality. So when this corruptible has put on incorruption, and this mortal has put on immortality, then shall be brought to pass the saying, Death is swallowed up in victory. There's that word again. O death, where is your sting? O Hades, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, my beloved brethren, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord. That means patient continuance, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. Well, look at 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 3. Peter writes this. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His abundant mercy has begotten us again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. How awesome is it that our God has called you to Himself, has given you the faith to believe that Christ has been risen from the dead, to lay your stake alongside of His resurrection as the power that assures you the victory, has given you everything that is necessary so that the victory that Christ secured has been transferred to you, and then has the tenacity and the temerity to call you victorious because Christ gave you victory. I don't even know how to process that. And we look at our lives and say, oh, I'm not victorious because this bad thing happened. Really? Beloved, you're more than victors. You're overcomers. You have been made triumphant in Christ because His death secured your hope and your victory. His death has given you all that is necessary for truth and life and righteousness. His death compels us to press on with diligence, to rightly understand these things, to dive in, to dig in, to work at knowing everything that God has to tell us, to recognize that nothing that you spend yourself on will ever matter one one billionth as much as it is to know the truth of God's Word. Because everything else that you spend yourself on is going to vanish when you die. It's just gone. And the things that you spent your life building and the things that you spent your life hoarding and the things that you spent your life acquiring, they're all going to go away. I promise you this. Nobody will ever love your junk as much as you do. Amen? You can go to any thrift store in the land and see the proof of that. Nobody will ever love your stuff as much as you do. So why do you give yourself to it? What God calls us to do is instead to give ourselves to Him. To walk in the grace and the truth and the strength of His triumph over death, over hell, over Satan, over every evil thing. And to recognize that He's calling us to walk in that same victory with Him today. He's calling us to press after Him with everything we have in us. And to not shrink back. To not just coast to the end of our life, but to run with passion and vigor and strength right off the edge of the cliff. (laughs) 
I have a ringtone for Alex because he skydives, and it's, it's the goofy yell from the Disney movie. <laughs> and that's, in my mind, how it sounds when he jumps out of an airplane. I would like that to be the way that your life sounds when you run off the cliff. I'd like that to be the way that you approach the end of your life with passion and purpose and saying, you know what, God, I'm not going to stop moving until I can't move at all. I'm going to keep pressing after you. Now, I've got to tie a little hitch in this so that we can go home. Because we're going to come back to this idea. We're going to talk about diligence some more next week. So if I've warned you out already, go do something else next Sunday. The diligence that you have to pursue Christ, this faith, it's birthed out of what you believe about him. Did I make that point clearly enough throughout the day? I hope I did. Because it's really important that you get that. If you don't believe the truth about him, if you think that your salvation is based in you, if you think that you have anything to do with anything that you do, you're going to miss this point. It's all about him. It's all about his truth. It's all about his life. It's all about his victory. It's all about his death. It's all about his resurrection. It's all about him. And it matters in how you live out the rest of your days. Because here's what I want you to go home chewing on. What you believe today shapes how you face tomorrow. Amen? What you believe today shapes how you face tomorrow. Let's pray. Father, I ask that you give to us grace to understand these things. And I pray, God, that anything that I've said that's amiss or wrong or or out of line with your word would be left dead on the floor. But I pray, God, that every single word that I spoke that is your truth would be planted in us and bear fruit. God, forgive us for the lazy way that we approach our faith. Forgive us for the lack of diligence and the lack of, of faithful pressing after you. God, enable us to press after you in these dark, dark days. Help us recognize that the darkness has been given to us as a gift because in the darkness, even the weakest candle blazes, God. And you have given us times in which even the weakest of saints can blaze for your glory. God, we thank you for that. Give us a perspective on it that is transformative and that is gracious and honoring unto you. We thank you for the mercy that makes us your own. And we thank you for the Christ who died for us. For it's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen. Amen. Amen.